Hey, welcome everybody. This is Dan from the Spiritual Underground Podcast. Uh, coming to you on a Sunday morning out here in my backyard wood shop, DTM Enterprises. Um, kind of a little rainy Sunday morning in the fall, beautiful day. Um, let me get the commercials out of the way. 12-Step Spiritual Recovery. It is a book by James Christopher Cohn. can be found on Amazon. Um, it is the 12 steps for anyone and everyone. It is also the 12 steps for people who are currently in 12-step fellowship groups and may want a deeper dive. Um, we have meetings in Louisville. There's a uh, website, 12stepspiritualrecovery.com. There's a Facebook page, 12-step uh, spiritual recovery. We have a Zoom meetings. So if you're interested in them, you can go to the website or the Facebook page and find out how to get to those. That's uh, one thing about this uh, pandemic has opened up a way to get to meetings all over the place, and you don't have to be uh, here in Louisville to, uh, to attend and try out these tools. So 12-Step Spiritual Recovery, James Christopher Cohn, also is a Kindle version. I personally would uh, advise that you get the Kindle version if that is up your alley. Um, DTM. Woodwork and Handyman, my little business here in the uh, Louisville metropolitan area. Uh, anything that, that I may be able to help with on that on that front, any uh, woodworking. As I said, I'm in my wood shop in my backyard. I do custom woodwork, and I uh, and I run around doing odd odd jobs handymaning. So uh, you can get me at dan at dtmww.net or uh, look that up. There's a Facebook page and Instagram pages for, for DTM Woodwork also. So... Uh, so I, I think you would be able to find me. Uh, my guest today, that's we'll get down to the nuts and bolts of what we're doing. Uh, my guest today uh, was one of the first, so my life completely changed when I met this group called the Spiritual Underground, hence the name of this podcast. And there were certain people, which the whole group in together has certainly had the impact but there are people who I remember, and I have this knack, or and I don't know if it's me specifically, but uh, I knew when I walked into the basement of Brian's house that night that I was someplace special before I even had any idea of what, what it really was. I just had a feeling, and this is hindsight. I didn't know it then, but I can see, oh, that's what I was feeling. And uh, Eddie here was uh, one of the very first guys to stick his hand out and introduce me and make me feel welcome in the group. Uh, you walk into a group of men, you don't know any of them. If, if I don't know anybody that is totally comfortable with that situation. And uh, guys like Eddie, uh, and specifically Eddie, does just a wonderful job of making you feel welcome as you walk in the door. And I do remember that. Uh, I watch Eddie walk the walk and, and, and practice these principles in all his affairs and it inspires me to do the same. Um, his uh, work on a service plane is 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 fantastic, and it, and, it, and it's a uh, part of the reason why I am. Uh, uh, it certainly impacted me and my life of service too, because I watch what Eddie does, and uh, there's that thing of uh, if you want what I have, do what I do, and I see that from Eddie, and I know his service is one of the anchors in his uh, in his recovery, and as twelve um, step recovery says, recovery, unity, and service. Uh, that plane uh, in Eddie's life is, is, is clear to see, and, and, and it really warms my heart to watch him uh, operate and, and his heart for helping other people. Um, so he's in here today. Uh, I guess that's uh, someplace around 
my first trip in spiritual underground was someplace around six years ago it was someplace between the end of the year and all that stuff gets kind of foggy um, my sobriety date was was to follow those first trips into the spiritual underground i wasn't sober when i got there but uh so it's been six years you know and that's a. Uh, I feel like you really get to know people when we do this thing uh, and, and, and actually make these connections. And, and uh, it's one of the biggest things for me in recovery is this uh, hitting that core value of mine that I didn't even know I had, which is connection. Uh, I need connection with my brothers. And, uh, and Eddie has uh, fulfilled that. As one of the people who has fulfilled that in my life. So as I always do, and I didn't tip him off, but I'm sure he knows it. I always ask a guy or a gal here, first thing, because it's a very important day, what's your sobriety date? My sobriety date is April the 22nd, 2002. 2002. So that made 18 years this year, if my math is right. Correct. Correct. All right. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing pretty good. I'm more relaxed than I was when I came in the door, but that's okay. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people in uh don't know exactly what they're getting into when they came come over here uh i think the atmosphere is uh comfortable enough and 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 allows people to lower their guard uh a big overproduced studio might be a little intimidating but just sitting out here in this uh wood smoke that smells of freshly cut lumber uh i think that 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 aroma is good for this and for for our little mission here uh 2002 so uh did you uh, uh you grew up in louisville right yeah you were born in louisville mm -hmm. yeah well tell me a little bit about your upbringing and you know i like to go back to uh and hear a little bit i think it always is important to hear how people way before the alcoholism and and became apparent uh hear about how people's uh, early lives uh how that played out for you well, thank you, Dan. I appreciate being here. Uh, one of the, the basis of, of telling your life story, basically, is to start at the beginning of yeah. your life. Uh, I was born at an early age. At, before I was born, my brother was an only child. And as soon as I came into the world, he became a jealous person. Uh, I didn't realize it early on because I didn't understand that kind of stuff, but I found out about it as life went on. My brother and I are both alcoholics. Uh, my recovery, or my uh, time of being an alcoholic uh, spanned about 40 years, and his only spanned three years, but uh, hmm. we'll get to that later. Uh, and he's an alcoholic in recovery. Yeah, he's... Yeah. Uh, he a was recovered a, alcoholic. He, yeah, he was, he was a social worker, and when I made my ninth step amends to him... I had to call him because he lives up in Illinois, and I had we never got along really well together. We bickered a lot, we fought a lot, uh, we argued a lot, and more often than not, he forced his intellect upon me hmm. in many different ways. Uh, but when I called him to make my amends to him for some of the terrible things I may or may not have done to him because of my drinking he said I know exactly where you're coming from and I said how could that possibly be you don't even drink now I had not seen him except one time since high school because when he graduated from high school and here in Louisville 
he left Louisville and he never came back except once or twice. And the only two times he did come back to Louisville was not to see the family, not to visit old friends, but he came back here for symposiums of which he was an invited part. Hmm. And I think he came back once to speak here on uh, uh, a subject called psychodrama, which was, as a social worker, was part of his uh, regimen of teaching. And uh, so when I said that to him, he said, what you don't understand is uh, I'm an alcoholic too. Hmm. I've been in recovery for 10 years. This was back when I first called him, which back then was uh, in 1999, which was uh, at the beginning of my first recovery. Yeah. And uh, so you didn't know that he was in recovery. Had no idea. He, I, I didn't know he drank. He told me that as as a 44 uh, year old man with a boyfriend who was rather edgy about his behavior you know before dinner and stuff he said you'd be a lot better uh, partner if you would just take a drink before dinner and relax a little bit you're too tense Hmm. and my brother had resisted drinking all of his life because as a social worker and as the child of an adult alcoholic we we both were our mother was an alcoholic but she was not in recovery for way too many years and uh, but he knew about it. He understood it, and he'd studied it and researched it and all that stuff. Whereas I was just a easy, easy go lucky type of person that didn't. I knew my mother drank, and I knew that uh, there were problems, but I didn't know what he knew because of his education. And uh, he told me that he was convinced by his partner to take a drink and he drank he drank a gin and tonic for a drink before dinner and he said that was one and then the next day he had one and the next day he had one and the next day he had one he thought everything was okay he didn't really worry about it too much but within three years he was drinking a quart of gin a day Hmm. And uh, he could see that he'd gotten into deeper than he planned on. And he was an alcoholic, just like our mother was. And he assumed I was, because like I said, we didn't see each other. He just got reports on my behavior, uh, my lockups and my uh, run-ins with the law and things like that. And uh, so he got into recovery. And he got into the program, and he stayed there, and he's he's still there today. Yeah. You know, I think he's what close to thirty years in recovery now. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But the difference is, as soon as I did that, it broke the ice between us. We have been close ever since. Right. We love each other. We get along fine. And every once in a while, I drive up to Illinois to visit him. Yeah, stay for two or three days, but two or three days is our limit. That's about all we can tolerate right. of each other. And that is that's just awesome. That miracle recovery stuff of like, uh, you know, the families are reassembled. That's right. That's true. And that's that's all the family there is. Yeah, there's nobody else left but us. And we got a couple of cousins uh, here in town that uh, 
we never talked to each other. We never got along as kids. So there's never been any love lost by not talking to each other. Yeah. And I got one cousin out west that I talk to once or twice a year. And that's it. Everybody yeah. else is gone. Yeah. Nobody so, to leave our money to. Yeah. Nobody to leave our junk to. I'm available. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> you want my junk? You're welcome. It'll clutter this place up something fierce. Yeah. So uh, how was your, as you grew up here, you grew up in Louisville, uh, that'd be... Uh, some time ago. Uh, well, I was born in 1945. So, oh, right after the uh, war. Well, no, actually, I was born during the war. During. I, was, I was one of the last war babies. Yeah. I was born in March of 45, and the war was, was an over till like the 22nd of August. Yeah. So, there was a little bit of time to claim, claim being a war baby, you know. Yeah. Mom and Dad were together? Yeah. They were actually both uh, in radio. They worked for Wave Radio. Huh, I didn't know uh, that. They were continuity writers, which meant they, they wrote the scripts for what, what went on between the announcers and whatever whatever was going on in the studio at the time so that everybody could stay on point and not get behind because time is of the essence on a broadcast. Yeah, that's a wonderful collateral benefit I have here on this side of the microphone that even when I think I know somebody pretty good, when we sit down here, I get to know more things about you and that uh, that's a blessing to me that I uh, get to know you better. Well, that's all right. That's that's one of the things benefits is of not being afraid of this microphone. Doesn't yeah. bother me a bit. You yeah. know? Uh, I've been on television a few times, radio a few times. And uh, most of the time, I was either doing advertisements for my dad. He was he went into advertising after he got out of the out of the war. And uh, sometimes we just go and sit in front of the TV and or TV camera and eat ice cream while the Cisco kid was playing, and that was our commercial. And somebody was talking over the top. I was selling Seal Test ice cream. Yeah. But uh, my dad had some of the better accounts in the Louisville area, and so we did some of the better commercials. So. Yeah. It was it was kind of fascinating to get to do that kind of stuff. Yeah, it sounds fun. But uh, when I was, I don't know, maybe in my one to two years, uh, I'd say it was probably after I learned to communicate. I could talk, but I really couldn't communicate well. I recall in my brain uh, periods of time where I was laying in my bed, uh, sometimes when I was waking up in the morning, sometimes when I was going to sleep at night, and many times it was two and three week periods when my asthma kept me confined to a bed, mm. and I was pretty much in isolation from everybody because uh, you know everybody's either at work or over in another part of the house or something. And uh, I spent a lot of time talking to I'm not sure what back in those days I don't think we called it God uh, my family grew up in a church but we weren't I never I never caught the essence of what knowing uh, some kind of power greater than myself or God or what what have you in those days it never quite I never quite made a, the mental connection so whenever I went to church or whenever I was talking to somebody and they said, do you know, is Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior or something like that, I always said no because I wasn't connected to anybody. And uh, when I was in church and I'd see people, they'd say, now we bow our heads and people would steeple their fingers together, 
bow their heads and pray. They might be kneeling. They might be sitting, whatever. And I would just do whatever they did, and then I would sit there and think, I wonder what the hell they're thinking about. You know, I don't, and I'd look around at everybody and not know what was going on, and never making this connection, never having this uh, back and forth that I have nowadays with a power greater than myself, and not having anything to lean on in that respect. Yeah. Uh, I had my dad to lean on. I had my mother to lean on when she was sober. And most of the time she was when she was around me, but there were moments when she didn't get up on Saturday mornings for a long time, mm. and it took me forever to put two and two together with the, the fact that they went out on Friday night, and I went to bed, then they came home, and then uh, I got up, then they got up, or maybe he, my dad would get up and take us somewhere, and we had lots of wonderful adventures that way with my dad where we'd wow. go on little trips and jaunts and things. But uh, my mother never really participated in that stuff because she was pretty much whacked out. Yeah. But I didn't know that back then. It wasn't until I was about nine or so that she got committed to an institution for alcoholism for a few weeks to dry out and mm. try to get sober. And, uh, found out some, for some friends of mine in AA that... Uh, some of the periods that she was in places like Lady of Peace and uh, uh, Baptist Hospital, she actually was in the same locale with AA meetings. Whether she ever attended one or not, I'll never know. Mm -hmm. And uh, because uh, she passed away before I got sober, so I didn't have the the wherewithal to talk about that kind of stuff because it wasn't anything part right. of my lexicon yet. Yeah, right. So. But she used transcendental meditation to get sober. Interesting. And uh, she be she was so into it that she became a transcendental meditation instructor for a number of years. She'd been a ballerina and a, and a uh, like I say, she was in the radio writing continuity and stuff like that. So she was well mixed up in the arts around the Louisville area and stuff. So that's pretty cool. So she did end up stopping drinking. Yeah, she did, but it wasn't. She was, uh, I'd say, s maybe sixty-three or sixty-four when she got sober, mm. and she passed away at seventy-two. So she yeah. really didn't have that much long, long a time. Well, it is. Uh, but whatever, she, whatever she did through transcendental meditation stuck. Yeah. Unfortunately, meditation the transcendental meditation doesn't cover the uh, mental aspects that we face with resentments. Yeah. And she had many resentments, and she was very angry as she as she got older about different things. Sometimes when I'd come to visit her, she'd be in a rage about something. Ah. But those weren't things I'd seen before. But as she got older, they they came on to her pretty good. And because she was sober, she didn't have any way to escape from them. Right. Yeah, it's almost heavier. Yeah, right, right. That's one of the beauties of this program is we get to make a clean slate of everything and start over fresh. Yep, and then have tools to do what to do to process things when they do come up now. You right, know, right. That's, that's this practice and these principles is now I have, a, I have a guidebook on how to do this thing called life. I've got some instructions and uh, so I was saying here, you know, that and then when the guy's talking to me and uh, think wanting to get sober and, you know, not really 
up for the AA thing, you know, mm-hmm. uh, how they are when they're new. Uh, you know, there are other ways to quit drinking. Uh, I'm not familiar with any of them. <laughs> and if you want to talk to me, I can offer you to 12 steps. Uh, and I know that's an effective way, but there are other ways. So, you know, you don't want this, go try something else. And I know we as alcoholics, we tend to have to uh, try other things and fail before we'll actually pick up these tools. <laughs> Well, I know the first time I ever smoked a really good joint and got off on it, I was one of the first thoughts that crossed my mind was, wow, if I'd have had this back when I first started drinking, I would have probably never had a drink. Yeah. Because I hated the taste of alcohol, mm. but I drank it for the effect. Right. Amazing. I could sit and drink a whole quart of bourbon and not like a single bit of it, but I sure enjoyed what it did. Yeah. You know. Yeah, I never really liked it either. Beer I'm with you on taste. that. Now, beer, I think I acquired a taste acquired for. Acquired a taste for beer. Certain certain brands, I, I could drink buckets of it, and other brands, I could choke it all down, but I'd still get it down. Yeah, and I'd tell you I liked a cold beer after cutting the grass, and I liked it like that. In hindsight, I'm not exactly sure that I really did, uh, because you have to make yourself like that stuff. You well, have that's to make just yourself it. drink it. You're liking what you know is coming. Yeah, the effect. You know. Men and women drink essentially for the effect, and uh, I'll get into that little conversation with newcomers and when they're telling me they, no, no, I drink it because I like the taste. Like, no, you're not. You might think that your well, your operating system has been hijacked, and, and you only think you really like it. If it wasn't doing anything for you, you wouldn't be drinking it. Well, I've got friends that are in the uh, bourbon distilling business, and uh, I've been out with them quite a few times when everybody else was getting shit-faced. And they always manage to keep their composure. Mm-hmm. They don't ever get out of control like we did. Mm-hmm. Uh, they enjoy the taste. Right. And they just sit there and sip it. I had an aunt that did that. She'd get a, a jigger of bourbon and take a little sip. And a little while later, she'd take another little sip. And a little while later, she'd take another little sip. She never quite finished that one jigger. That's all she had. But uh, my mother could knock out half a bottle in the time that she took that one jigger. Yeah. And you're right. It's not. There are people who, there are people who probably do like the taste of it. Uh, but they're think, normal people. Yeah, right. They're not like us. Yeah, you know. yeah. Your phone is making some kind of noise. Did you hear that? It's going dling every once in a while. Really? Mm-hmm. Well, it might be vibrating. It might be. Getting... No, there's a tone that's coming out of it. No big deal. If it gets to be real disruptive, I'll say something. You know, we'll get it turned off. It, but uh, I did hear something come out of it. I I'm think. Sorry. I don't think there's anything else in here that would be making noise. But no big deal. So, uh-huh. uh, well, as you grew up here in Louisville, what, 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 how was your childhood? What kind of things? You know, you said you did stuff. Your dad took you places and had wonderful adventures there. Yeah, yeah, we did. School life. Uh, well, when when I was, uh, let's see, I guess I was. I think I was four years old. Uh, I woke up one morning, beautiful day, sun shining, crack of dawn, and uh, parents are asleep, my brother's asleep, but I'm awake. I'm out wandering around in the house. I get this thought. My dad had told me one day, he was showing me around the house as a little kid, and he took me in his bedroom and he, he showed me this drawer that was way up at the top of his bureau, which when I was a little kid was 
you know, quite a ways up there, about three or four more feet higher than I am. And uh, he said, you see that drawer up there? And I said, yeah. And he says, that's my private drawer. I don't want you ever going in there. <laughs> well, that set the trap for me, buddy, yeah, I'll right. tell you. So here I walked around, and I, I decided I was going in that room. And they were asleep, and I came in, and I had already developed stealth tactics. I mean, I wasn't like three, maybe four years old. And I pulled a chair up, I climbed up, I opened that drawer, and I started going through it, and I rummaged in it. And I found this cute little plastic package. And I didn't know what it was, so I stuck it in my pocket, and I finished rummaging through the drawer. I closed the drawer, still asleep on the bed. Really? You know, I guess a little bit knocked out, whatever. But I didn't understand that back then. Your dad did drink? Yeah, he drank. He'd keep up with my mother, but he he never was an alcoholic, as far as I know. Yeah. uh, I know that his father was a writer for a liquor magazine, and he would take hunting trips up into the north of uh, Michigan, and he'd take 50 or 60 distillers with him. And they'd all go up there on wagons and go hunting. And uh, each distiller would bring a keg of their own favorite brand of whiskey with them. Mm-hmm. And they'd stay up there for two or three months. Whoa. I mean, these were big, big hunting expeditions. My, my grandfather was an explorer for National Geographic. And as a sideline, it was a hobby. And uh, they, I read a, a a magazine article on one of their expeditions and the guy that wrote the story said he interviewed the drover who was in charge of all the teams of oxen and sledges and stuff like that and they they would said they was they'd start out with 10 or 15 sledges maybe 10 for all the passengers and all their luggage and five more for all the whiskey mm. and on the way back they didn't need but 10 sledges because they drank all yeah. the whiskey and left the barrels in the woods uh-huh. so they drank quite a bit evidently yeah what was the plastic thing that you got away with Except well that's that. that's the thing I, I i i got out of the house and went outside and I opened it up and it was a balloon a balloon yeah so what the hell what do you, what's a four-year-old kid do with a balloon he takes it over the water spigot and he fills it up with uh-huh. water so i filled it up with water and it was about i don't know two feet long by then and very heavy for a four-year-old kid and i'm i'm walking around in my driveway with this thing and it's jiggling back and forth and back and forth and i'm trying to find a place to throw it to make it bust like you do with a water balloon yeah, you know yeah. and this guy comes up and he sees me and he says I know you, and he knew my name, and evidently I knew him, and, and I, I, he was a young fellow, wasn't, wasn't an old man or anything like that, he was a kid, you know, but he was older than me, Yeah. and he asked me what I was doing, and I, like a dumbass, I told him about sneaking into my dad's drawer and everything, he was a friend already, you know, and uh, he said, well, if you got any sense at all, you'll just heave it, and it'll explode. So I finally threw it, and of course it exploded, and it got us both wet, and we laughed about it. We thought that was a lot of fun. And then he hit me with this question. He says, now, what are you going to do when I tell your dad how bad you've been? And I just froze. I'd been caught. Mm. And I said, well, I don't know, you know. 
I, I don't want to get in trouble with my dad. He'll spank me. I'll do anything to get out of that. He said, well, I got something for you to do. And he took me over behind his head, and he had me perform a, uh, an act on him. Oh. And uh, I didn't know what I was doing. Uh, to you know, and and I, when it was over, I didn't know what had happened. But by the time it was over, he just disappeared, and I didn't see him again for a couple of years. But he was a visiting kid from another part of town that came and visited his aunt and spent the night with her. So as the years went by, I saw him a few times after that, but I never connected the two items. I never remembered the event, and when. I got into AA, I went to a meeting up on Bardstown Road, and I actually met the guy, became friends with him, and never never put the two and two together that he had the exact same first and last name as the fellow that did what he did. I never connected it at all until after he died. Hmm. And then God allowed that thought, thought to flow back into my brain that that was the guy. There was no doubt about it hmm. because of the people he knew, the neighborhoods he was from, that kind of stuff. But I was protected from that. My childhood, my adult life, it was never an issue until then. Wow. And that it is... never came out until I told my sponsor my 12-step, my, my story. Fifth step. You know, I... Uh, was about halfway through my fifth step with him and we took a break for lunch it, he had he had told me when I when I was doing my my uh, fifth step he said you're in your 50s so I'll give you an hour for every 10 years of your life because it's going to take a while so be prepared for it and so mm-hmm. when I when I went, when we sat down and he told me that again and we broke for lunch at two and a half hours and sat there and had a picnic lunch that we'd, we'd brought along. Uh-huh. And during that lunch, that thought resurfaced for the first time in my life. Wow. And I blurted, I told him about that and got it off my chest. Yeah. And at the time I told him, I was horrified that I was actually telling somebody something like this who basically two months before had been a total stranger to me. Yeah. But because I heard him speak in a meeting and I heard him talk about doing a lot of the things I like to do, like drink, get stoned, go somewhere, shoplift, and laugh about it, and then uh, go on about my merry life like nothing had ever happened because I was so tuned into doing things like that. And I told him, and then he topped me. Then he told me that his father had molested him day in and day out for a couple of years. Wow. And I suddenly realized that the horrific thing that had happened to me, which I had forgotten for 54 years and suddenly remembered, and came all the horror of it came rolling back on me just in that short period of time that I'm sitting there talking to him. And then he tells me that, and I realize, man, I've had it easy. Hmm. And here I am sitting here telling this guy why i got to get sober. 
and that was one of the major breaks in my life that ever came to me where I realized that, you know, life's a lot better than I had ever thought it was and that a lot of the things that I had thought that had happened to me that were so bad didn't amount to a hill of beans. Yeah. And it gave me a really good chance to get sober and stay sober. Yeah, yeah. And because of his vulnerability of being able to be honest and tell about his stuff in the past allowed you to be able to do the same thing when the time came. And it's interesting that that memory, that does strike me that that memory was suppressed for you so you didn't have to uh, have that haunting you all your life and then being able to unload it at the exact right time. That's right, because I know lots of fellows that come to me, and that's one of the things that's been bugging them all their lives. Yep, and it is. And uh, it, it's, it's hard to, hard to get shape, uh, get away from it, but the, the prayer work and the, and the step work allow us to do that. Mm-hmm. You know, that's what happy, joyous, and free is all about. Right, yep. Yeah, but, the stuff that carry it to the grave. And, uh, and uh, the other little aspect of him sharing the same thing is that I'm not alone in this either. You know, we can, uh, if you did carry it all your life, you would be, all, I think, at least in, in my, my world, I've had a similar circumstance in my life uh, that, that I tried to not remember but I couldn't stop remembering it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I had a lot of shame built up around it. And, and I thought I was the only one to ever have that happen to him, you know, and uh, to uh, when I finally let it out of the bag and got vulnerable to my sponsor, that lifted the weight off of it. So it wasn't the big heavy thing I was carrying anymore. And then when I was able to actually share that with my guys, uh, that allows them to then get free of, similar kind of circumstances around their life you know and and you can watch that get lighter in their world too that's true that's true now i remember when i took my first drink i mean i remember the day it was Mm. everything i was at the uh 1960 state basketball championships they were played in louisville at freedom hall and uh, i was with high school yeah high school and i was with Four other guys from my high school, and we had gone to the tournament and got to the championship game and went to the game, watched it, and uh, Flage won the game. They Was were that not, your school? No, hell no. Our school didn't get him. Okay, I was just wondering, you know, if you I were mean, following the ball games, if it was something you just well, did basketball or if it was, was your a big team. deal back in those days. I mean, yep. you know, uh, some people it, follow basketball and some people follow their team. Well, we followed our team. And since football season was over and basketball season was nearly over, uh, you know, we're, we're still going to games. Yeah. And we got to see who's going to actually win it all and yeah. get into the state championship yeah. was, was a thrill. You know, it was my first one. And uh, after the game was over, we're down downtown. And uh, one of the fellows who's maybe 16, 17 years old and shorter than the rest of the guys, he's put on a pair of sunglasses and he's and he's a uh, uh, beige trench coat and walked into this liquor store because he knew he could get served in there and he got a six pack of fall city beer and he brought it out and he passed him out to us and so we're just going to have one beer to celebrate i mean these guys were in high school and they talked about drinking like like it was going out of style hmm. and then when i'm with them i'm 14 years old 15 something like that and they pass out one to each person that's all we got one beer well I, at the time not having 
had anything other than a little taste from my dad one time when I was a little toddler and I knew I didn't like it. Here I was, I had it and I knew I didn't like it, but I took a sip anyways and it tasted just as nasty that day as it did back when I was a kid. And I took another sip trying to be a man and then I said, nah, here, somebody can have it. And of course the guy that bought it, he snatched it from me and he's, I'll take it because evidently he was the one that was going to probably have the tendencies that I developed later on yeah. too. But that was my first drink amongst my peers in an atmosphere which was free of parental discretion and you know yeah. and observation. And, and obviously it was the first drink, but not yeah. a drunk. You didn't get anything. You don't remember. There was no effects of it that nothing, day. Nothing. And I got my driver's license at about 16 and a half or 17. I think it took me four times to get the test right. So mm. it was a lot longer than most of my peers getting my license. But when I did, I found some fellows that liked to drink. And uh, one of them had the ability to go pick up his brother and take him out of his house. And he would buy beer for us. Mm. His brother was Catholic. Well, they were all Catholic and uh his brother had five kids already, and, and any chance he had to leave the house was a chance for less, one less kid in, in, on the payroll, you know. Yeah. So he would he would go anytime we wanted him just to get away because his you know there's no contraception in Catholic families. Yeah. And uh, it was not too long before I developed the ability to drink my six pack at the same speed everybody else did when we get a case of beer. I mean, I started out, I couldn't drink the whole six-pack the first couple of times we did it. But then I got to where I could do that, and then it got to where I could get past it and get into one of somebody else's extras, you know, that they weren't ready for yet. You know, I was progressing quickly. And within a three-year period, I got to the point where uh, I could drink more than anybody else in my group. I could drink faster than anybody else in my group. I could chug a beer faster than anybody else in my group. And I got locked up three times for drunk in an automobile situations where I had to go to jail. Mm. By the time I was 18 years old, I'd been to jail three times. I'd been kicked out of school four times by then because uh, each time you got locked up, you went to the state board of education or the city board of education to get it get back in school and they notified your school and you know the shit hit the fan all around it's like a pinball machine yeah. operation and uh it's an interesting thing to uh be suspended from school because of uh because of that you know well it just frees up more time to do that well you're not you weren't out for for but just that the time you're in jail overnight and that, that that day and then you had to go back and face everybody yeah. and you had to go back to school and be there and stuff and go through all that harassment and yet that fourth time uh when i got locked up it wasn't for drinking although the fact was we were drinking when we mm-hmm. did it uh we broke into a drugstore out in anchorage broke in yeah in the middle of the night and uh one of the guys was from Anchorage, and he set the deal up, and you know we we got in there, and everything was fine for a while. We're having a ball being in this drugstore; it's it's closed. We can have anything we want, you know. And 
we weren't into drugs yet, so we didn't bother that stuff. Mm-hmm. And of course, we got some candy, and we, you know, got a little of this, a little of that. And then this dog started barking, and the dog in the grocery store started bar- or in the grocery store. Dog in the neighborhood in the started neighborhood. barking, and then we heard some fella say, uh, "Come out with your hands up." And we looked out the front window, and there was this guy out there in the street, and he had a pistol pointed at the building. So we went out the back window. wasn't an officer. It was just a it somebody. Was a, it was the neighbor that had the dog. Okay. And uh, so we went out the back window and took off running through the woods. And one guy went one way, and one guy went another way, and I took off just straight into the darkness. Blind panic. Yeah. And I found a tree, and I laid down in the shadow of the tree so that I was totally covered by darkness, couldn't be seen. And you could hear him walking around and talking, and, and then I heard over the over the microphone that uh, uh, we have Mrs. So-and-so's car, and uh, apparently it belongs to one of the fellows that, that got away, so we've got him for sure. Of course, mm-hmm. that was me. Oh, really? And uh, I heard that, and so I just got up and walked out and turned myself in. There wasn't any sense in dealing with it anymore. I wasn't going anywhere. I didn't get anything worth a damn, but the thrill was over and the shit was hitting the fan, so to speak. So I just turned myself in, and I got a ride down to the uh, detention center downtown. And Detective Robinson was the police officer that took me down there. And all the way down there, he talked to me incessantly. And he didn't tell me I did a bad thing. He didn't tell me I was a bad boy. He didn't tell me any of that stuff. He drilled it into me that the first thing you learn if you're going to commit crime is you don't ever get caught. And he he said that over and over and over. I got it pretty good in my head not to ever get caught again. And uh, so I never did get caught again for anything other than occasionally, you know, being drunk in an automobile. That, that's something you can't prevent. If they get you, they get you, you know. But yeah. anything else, I never got caught for again. Yeah, you know, I are a lot alike like that. I got in a lot of trouble when up until when I was about 19. And those that trouble early taught me how not to get caught. And I mm-hmm. went another 19 years after that before I had another incident. Yeah, well, I'm very, I'm very fortunate. I never had another incident. The, only, the worst thing that happened to me after I got sober was, was speeding tickets. Mm. And uh, it's been quite some time since I got one of those on account of the cops are so busy doing other things nowadays, you know, because yeah. I still do it. Yeah. I know that. I like it. I enjoy the driving fast. What happened in uh, what What was the consequences after this uh, burglary? Well, that's the beauty of it was I was still 17, so it was a juvenile offense, mm-hmm. and so it was sealed away. And uh, I was put on two years probation, which would have rolled over into my 19th birthday. But nothing I did after that ever came up because it was a sealed deal yeah so technically it was only in my head that i was on probation i didn't have to go see an officer a probation officer or anything like that it was just a slap on the wrist basically Mm. and uh, a couple of times when i got locked up uh when i was 19 uh it was never brought up because it wasn't a, wasn't a part of my record as an adult. Yeah, huh. You know, so there was no consequences, basically. Yeah. 
and uh, but the fact that he taught me what he taught me kept me from getting in trouble again. Yeah, you, know. you heard that message. It's interesting you that I bet cop, uh, an officer was the one that gave you that message. But by the time I was by the time I was uh, twenty one, I'd been drinking in bars since I was sixteen. There was a lot of bars that would sell to miners, and I found out which ones they were, and I hung out in them, yeah. and I never got in trouble for it. And uh, so by the time I was old enough to drink legally, I was old enough to get in the bar business. And I got a job as a bartender by the time I was 22, and by the time I was 25 years old, I had a bar of my own. Wow. Uh, I found a location in the Crescent Hill area to open up a place, and what was the, what was it called? Uh, Whistle Dicks. Is <laughs> at Frankfurt and Clifton? Uh, it was 800 square feet. It sold draft beer. It was Sterling draft beer. We had uh, exclusive with Sterling. That was the only brand we sold, and uh, that was rare in that time. That was that was in 1970. I mean, most most bars had several different taps with several different brands on uh -huh. them, and uh, but back in the old days, it used to be all the breweries had their own specific taverns, and only their products were sold in there. If you wanted the other brand, you had to go across the street to the other bar, and more than likely, if you went over there, you got in a fight with somebody because you're from across the street type huh. thing. Beer loyalty. There was a there was like you go into Germantown and uh, there was usually bars on four different corners and there'd be four different brands of beer in the Louisville area and each one was owned by a separate brewery and uh, you drank their beer and you you go across the street you got in trouble with your friends for drinking somebody else's beer yeah and you got in trouble with those guys for coming in their place because you didn't belong. I didn't know that. I didn't. Uh, I had Very it. territorial. Hmm. A lot. A lot of well. A lot of Germantown. Uh, is bordered by other countries. Uh, Frenchtown uh, in in Louisville area it borders Germantown. You know, and then there's there's the Irish Hill neighborhood, which is right out uh, to the east towards uh, St. Matthews. Yeah. You know, and and those different places were you you don't go across into those areas right. unless you were of that ethnic personality. Otherwise, you get in trouble. You get in a yeah. fight. You know, you get bumped. You get roughed up pretty good, and uh, but that was back in the eighteen hundreds when my grandfather was a young man. Oh, okay. Yeah. He was he was born in eighteen eighty four, so he was he was in his raging days right at the end of that century, you know. And so that's how I learned about that stuff. Oh. You know? I was thinking if that was happening in the seventies, I was like, hmm. No, no, yeah. no. By I then, got you. I mean, uh, there's still remnants. I mean, there's still little. Like the ethnic thing is obviously well, Germ still. Well, Germantown, there's still a lot of Germans that live in Germantown. Yeah. And and uh, Paris Town is, like I said, it's it's right on the edge of it, so there's a lot of people of French descent that live there, you know. Turn down the heat a little bit. And back when we were kids, of course, black neighborhoods were restricted, and blacks could only live in certain neighborhoods, and they couldn't move out of them from one to the other without permission. Huh. You know, it was really strict back in those days. And... Uh, the only way they could be in any of the other neighborhoods was if they had a work permit. Hmm. You know, interesting. Yeah, well, that's that was that was true down south up until uh, right. the Civil Rights Act finally yeah. got. Well, the Civil Rights Act, I think, it was 1967, and uh, the first time I went to a Mardi Gras was in 1970, 
and the only blacks that were allowed in the French Quarter had still had to have a work permit. Hmm. And in 1971, we went back, and that was the first year blacks were allowed to participate in the Mardi Gras celebrations in the French Quarter without any kind of permit. And uh, we took our bar crowd down there in 1970. Like 20 of us went down there for Mardi Gras, stayed the whole week, and drank every day. We raised all kinds of hell. And then we went to the over to Florida to Panama City and stayed a week there to recuperate. <laughs> and we drank every day there, of course. Yeah. And then we came back to Louisville and drank every, every day. And we got back celebrating yeah. the fact we'd been there. But that's what we did in those days, you know. But I got into that place and I stayed there for two years and my partners uh, wanted to diversify and all the ideas that had started the business were my ideas and the operation was my operation and they were just silent partners uh, and by the time we opened our second location down on Broadway we were already the largest retailer of sterling draft beer in the world we were selling 125 half barrels a month out of an 800 square foot building, one glass at a time for 25 cents a glass and 10 cents if a train came through, and you could only get one 10 cent beer each time a train came through. So it wasn't <laughs> like there was a bunch of people trying to get drunk on a quarter. Yeah, you know. But uh, it was a really popular location. It was a really good idea, and it went over well. And then when we opened a duplicate location down on down on Campbell and Broadway for the medical school students, uh, we called that place the recovery room, and it was decorated in uh, late 1800s medical equipment and stuff that they uh -huh. stole out of the medical school basement uh -huh. and furnished the place, you know. And uh, after six months' time, we were not selling any more beer out of that one than we did out of the other one. And the other one was slowly deteriorating because the crowd was moving downtown because it was bigger. It was five times as big, a lot more room for pinball machines. And they wanted to put in live music, which had, in my estimation, would have killed the business. And when they decided to put the live music in, I sold out my percentage in the business and I quit the job and walked away. Hmm. Within four months of that, they were out of business in both locations and tied up in a five-year lease for that second location that, with nobody to occupy it. Wow. And they, fortunately, a couple of them were lawyers and a couple of them were doctors, so they could afford to, to pay it off and, and not hurt them so bad. But I was free and clear of any debt. Yeah. Because my part of it didn't, my part worked good and their part was, they're wanting to, take over and, and run a business they didn't know anything about, you know, and that was that. But that was my best shot ever. And uh, I had a couple other bars after that, and they didn't go so well, and they were up in Lexington. And uh, I wound up in a lot of financial trouble and had to go bankrupt. Hmm. And uh, after that, I, you know, kept working for other people for years. And uh, at the same time, I started getting mixed up in some of the uh, uh, illegal things up there, such as the drug sales and things that, uh, like I said, I never got caught. And, 
you know, nobody ever got hurt, nobody died or anything like that as a result of the things that I did. But I'm sure there was a lot of harm that I caused to people because I was a very convincing person when it came to persuading them to try something for the first time and mm. get on the bandwagon, so to speak, just like I'd been persuaded. Yeah. And, uh, but as time went on, I managed to make my amends to most people that I felt that I'd harmed, you know. The ones I could still find that were still alive. Right. You know. But I was up there and uh, I was running a liquor store for about five years in a, a black neighborhood up in Lexington uh, that I opened up for a guy that owned a big liquor store in a white neighborhood. He said, well, I want, I want you to open up another store for me. And when he took me down to where it was, uh, my ego said, hell, no problem, I can do this. And I ran it for five years, and, and I turned a very good profit for him for five years. And then he sold the business, and I quit it. And uh, For the first time, I was eligible for, for uh, uh, unemployment. Hmm because I had worked for the guy for five years and he'd sold the business and I was out of a job. So I was eligible to get unemployment for the very first time in my life. And so I was okay with kicking back for a few months and taking a free ride, you know. And don't you know, the day I went down to apply, uh, I got a phone call from a fellow that owned a bar in over by the U of L or the UK campus. And he said, can you come to work for me? And I said, what do you want me to do? And he says, I want you to be a bar manager. And I immediately said yes, because that was a prestigious job in my estimation. Yeah. And uh, I went down there and interviewed with him and talked to him and stuff. And I'd been hanging out in his bar for 15 years. He knew me like a brother. Right. He bought good stuff from me, so to speak, you know. And uh, his his bar manager, his general manager, was my, one of my best friends. So I was pretty much locked in there. Right. He didn't like playing. You know. And uh, so I took the job, and I became day bar manager at Two Keys Tavern, which is a big, big place up there and the most popular college bar in the city for many, many years. It's close. It's over 100 years old now. Still on, still going? Yeah, oh, yeah. Yeah, it's still going. Uh, it's three owners since then. Three different other people have taken it over and are running it, you know. But that fellow that I went to work for was a real popular UK football player, and he was knew everybody and stuff. And he had a friend that opened up the uh, Outback Steakhouse companies, and he went to work for him. And he got the area between Columbus, between Cincinnati and Columbus, Ohio, and he opened up all those Outbacks, and they all belonged to him. And uh, he always, whenever I'd see him, he'd say, "You know this." The silliest, stupidest thing I ever did in my life was sell that bar. Huh. He said, that was my home, and I sold my home, and I had to leave it, and now I'm out here in la-la land all up in the north and stuff. And, you know, I'm making a lot of money, but it's not like like I planned on it being. You know? Yeah. And uh, nobody, everybody that I ran around with up there, uh, most all of them are still alive, and they all still drink. And... Uh, I don't drink anymore, and like I said, I've been sober now 18 years. Every year at Christmas, I go up to a party and sit and talk with those people again, and we hash over the old times and things like that, but that's the only time I see them. Huh. 
but a lot of them are still doing the same thing they always did, and that's okay. And a lot of them are, are having really happy lives, and fortunately for them, weren't alcoholics like me. Right. They were normal drinkers, and they could still pretty well put it away. You know, and they're getting old, because I'm 75 now. So they're getting up there, too, because most yeah. of them were close to my age. But... Uh, In 1976, I had left and gone to Lexington. I went to a party up there. Uh, my friend, the guy that was the bar manager at Two Keys at the time, he threw a party, and I went up there. And uh, it was such a good party, and I met so many really neat people that the next week I packed my bags and I moved up there. Moved to Lexington. Moved to Lexington. So you were doing a commute in the past when you were working in Lexington? You were just driving back and forth? No. That was that was before I started oh, working okay, in Lexington, okay. right. before I ever went to Lexington. That's how I got to Lexington. Okay. I went to a party and stayed for 20 years. Uh-huh. And uh, at the end of that 20-year 20, 20 period, I'd, I'd uh, like I said, I'd been bankrupt. I'd had probably seven or eight different jobs, and I'd gotten married for seven years and divorced and bought and sold a house and uh, packed my bags and came back to Louisville. No real reason, just got out of Lexington. I got homesick. Did you? Yeah. I, uh, every, everything I'd, I'd done up there had been uh, a whitewash, basically. It didn't work out. Uh, my marriage didn't work out, and by the time I was married for seven years, I was disassociated from a lot of the people I used to run around with. Yeah. Drinking wasn't fun anymore. Yeah. And I got back here to Louisville, and I sold my house, and I took the money from the house and decided I was going to open a bar when I got home, got to Louisville. And I spent a year and a half looking for just the right location. I found it five or six times, but each time I backed out, for one reason or another. I found a reason not to sign on the dotted line and take over the lease and get going with it. Yeah. And on the last one, when I did that, I realized that the reason I didn't want to sign on the dotted line and get back into business was I would have to slow my drinking down just mm. to keep, just to get into business and get up and early enough to do it and, and stay there all day and all night like I was used to doing when I was running a bar. Yeah. When you when you got a bar of your own, you're married to it. Right. That means you're there 24-7 if you have to be. Yeah, my dad owned a bar for a period of time when I was a kid. I have some experience in watching <laughs> yeah. how that went. Well, I, 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 was, I enjoyed that life, and I really I really enjoyed it. And But by then, it had just my drinking was so bad that I, I just didn't want to part do that and I still had enough plenty of money left over from selling the house that I really didn't have to work so I didn't and now I'm 75 years old and I'm working paycheck to paycheck I'll be doing that the rest of my life I know that Hmm. but and I also you know there's there's moments when I get a little maudlin about that kick myself in the ass for doing it I could be set up in life if I wanted to be but I didn't listen to my brother I didn't do like him he's retired he's got more money than he'll ever need but I'm okay with that because of the program I've got, right. because of the friends I've got in this program, because of the meetings I get to go to and the people that I get to work with and the the discoveries I make when I meet those people, when somebody comes to me 
give you an idea, like Ross, he's a he's one of my favorites. When Ross and I were talking after he'd been in the program a little while, I pulled him aside and I told him a few things about better ways to do things, in my estimation. And he got pissed. And he ranted me up one side and down the other. And I said, that's fine. Don't worry about it. We can still be friends if you want to, but you go your way and I'll go mine. That's that's fine. I, I, I won't say anything more about it. And... Then he came to me last year, and he walked up to me, and I thought he was going to hit me, and he gave me a big hug, and he said, all is forgiven. He said, man, I, I'm doing the things that you said I should do, and you know, it's working for me like it should be, and it just blew me away. Wow. Because every once in a while, somebody comes back to you and says, I'm really glad you did what you did because now— I'm doing what I'm doing, and yeah. it's because of you. Very cool. It's just like what you said about me in the beginning of the broadcast when you said I was the one of the people that first came up to you, even though I sort of don't remember it. I mean, it's a daily thing. I do thing remember for you. it, but, but, uh, but a lot of the times that I do that, I go and I meet people and, and I go into meetings. And one of the first things that I learned a long time ago is when I go to a big meeting, or I go to the, one of the quarterly meetings where they have 800 or 900 people in the room. I don't go into the groups where everybody's all glad-headed and talking and hugging and shit like that. I go out to the edges. I go along the walls where the wallflowers are, and those are the people I talk to. Those are the people who are scared to death. Yep. They don't even want to be there. They're there because they have to be there because they're court-ordered, because their job said, you get help or we're firing you, whatever yep. it is. Yep. They're in that room. And they're desperate. And I, here comes this strange old guy up to him. Hi, how you doing? My name's Eddie. I'm an alcoholic. Let me let me talk to you for a minute. Yeah. And the next thing you know, we're laughing about stuff because I crack jokes with people and get them going. And, and, and the next thing you know, they're relaxed and they're sitting down and they're starting to pour their heart out to me. You know, and I tell them about how to find a sponsor and how to, how to go about it. And, and sometimes I get a sponsor out of it. Most times I don't. Yeah. But the glory and the fun is sooner or later I run into them again, and that's when they come up and they thank me. Right. I and that, you. that just makes my day. Yeah, it really does. I have the same yeah. kind of thing. Uh, I do. It, it warms my heart like like nothing else. So what made you hit a bottom? What what, what happened to you that made you turn the corner from the, that lifestyle? Well, that's just it. I got home to my apartment after the last time I didn't sign the contract on a bar, and I was living up in Crescent Hill in a little house, little pocket house, they call them. It's like 700-square-foot little house in a, on a street with a bunch of two- and three-story building houses along the way, old old turn of the century and pre-1800s houses up in the Crescent Hill area. And apparently somebody had had a, a relative that they wanted to live with them, but they didn't want them to live with them. Yeah. So they built a little house on the corner of the property, and, and that's the one I was renting. And it was pretty expensive, but I liked it, and I could afford it. And I wanted to be in that neighborhood because my dad grew up in that neighborhood, and uh, I was conceived in that neighborhood, and I felt a feeling of wanting to be there. Yeah, I had some roots. Yeah, mental roots connections and so I'm there and I'm sitting in my easy chair and I'm watching TV 
and I turn the TV off because it's really boring, and I get to thinking about the sorry state of my affairs and, and how I've gotten to where I am and where I, I don't even want to open a bar anymore and I don't know what I'm going to do with myself. And I start getting depressed and I start really getting depressed, you know. And I had been to a, a party for a friend of mine uh, it was like a I'm trying to think why, why he had the party uh, oh I remember his mother passed away and he was living in Lexington he was one of my friends the friend that I said that was the bar manager of the bar and his mother passed away and, and he had to come back to Louisville to bury her and uh, so when she when her funeral was announced, 99.9% .9 of the people that showed up were his friends, and 1.1% were people who actually knew her from the old days, because most of them were dead too. Uh -huh. And we had a knockdown, drag out, blow out funeral for her, and uh, everybody that showed up that were friends of his were from other parts of the country and they all did they all sold a lot of the same things we sold on the side and uh, they brought it with them and everything was different and we all got together and when the funeral was over we went down to this bar uh, called the uh, uh, I think it was the Barrett the Barrett Barrett Tavern or something like that. It was down down in the in the Bartstown Road area, and we walked in the door, and Bob told the bartenders. He said, uh, uh, "Here's two hundred dollars. Here's a couple of joints, and here's a few lines of coke. We want to take over the place, and we'd appreciate if you'd shut the doors, and we'll take care of you all night long." And they said, "Okay," <laughs> and that was that. And uh, we took the place over until 11 o'clock at night. And then at 11 o'clock at night, we left there, and we went out to Pat's Steakhouse because Bob said, I'm hungry. Let's go to Pat's. I'm buying. And we went out to Pat's Steakhouse over there on Brownsboro Road. And needless to say, we'd been drinking and putting other substances in our bodies all day and all night. So everybody's in pretty good shape. <laughs> and the people at Pat's Steakhouse, of course, knew Bob. They knew us, and they recognized us, and they knew we were good tippers, and they put us in a private room, and they took good care of us. And we all had a great big dinner. And then finally it's 2 o'clock in the morning. It's time to close, and we have to leave. And Bob's girlfriend comes up, and she says, Eddie, it's been a really great night. It was so good to see you. Can I have your keys? I said, why do you want my keys? You got a car? She said, well, you're just too drunk to drive. And I said, no, I'm not. I do this all the time. So I didn't give her my keys. And everything was fine. And I drove home. I didn't get in any trouble. But the next morning when I got up, I had the mother of all hangovers, which could be expected. And my solution for a hangover usually was to have a drink and it's called hair of the dog 
you know, get going again and get something started. And I drank a couple of drinks and uh, nothing happened. I drank a few beers and nothing happened. And I smoked a joint and I didn't get off on that. And then I drank some coffee and I didn't get a buzz from that. And by then it's one or two in the afternoon and I am stone cold sober. And my day is coming apart very quickly because I can't get where I need to be. And I don't know what to do. And I'm starting to get into a real panic situation. And I guess I felt like I was having a nervous breakdown because I just curled up into a ball and I rolled out of my chair onto the floor. And I lay there and I cried a little bit. And then I said something that I didn't think I would ever say because as before, I said I don't believe in God at the time. And I said, God, please help me. I don't know what to do. And I got quiet, and I just lay there for a while. There's a stone floor. It's cold. It's wintertime. It's not all that comfortable. But I still lay there, and, and the thought came to call a psychiatrist. And my parents had psychiatrists. My brother had a psychologist, but I never had one because I was quote-unquote normal, Yeah, they said. And uh, I got the phone book out, and I called one. They said, we're booked up. We don't take custom, new, new patients. And I called another and another and another. I went up calling 27 different psychiatric offices in the whole area before I found somebody would even talk to me. Wow. And he was a psychiatrist, and I told him a little bit about what was going on. He says, so let me get this straight. You... You had a really great night last night, and now you can't get a buzz going so that you can knock the edge off, right? I said, yeah, that's pretty much it. And he says, I don't think you need me. I think you need AA. I said, what the hell is that? And he explained to me a little bit about AA, and I said, well, is that one of those places where you got to take a, a, a dose of Jesus or dose of Jesus to get a cup of soup, you know, one of them places? Sorry. And uh, he said, no, they don't talk about Jesus in AA. They talk about God. And uh, it's a safe place to go. But you have to take the first step. You have to go. And he told me where there was a meeting in my area that day. Wow. And he said, I'll tell you what. I can't see you for 30 days. But if you go to three AA meetings... In the next 30 days, and you come see me, I'll sit and talk to you for an hour. I'm going to charge you 150 bucks, but I'll do it. And I agreed, and I went to a meeting that night. And I met an old man there, and he said, uh, I, there's another meeting tomorrow night. I think you'll like better than this one. The one I went to was a speaker meeting, and the guy was an old fella, but it wasn't the same guy I was talking to. And he was very serious about what he was talking about but it was interesting and I, I felt a kinship for him in a lot of the things that he said but this other guy told me he said well this other guy when he speaks he'll he'll tell you a lot of the same things you heard tonight but he's a lot funnier so you might enjoy that better so I went to that meeting the very next day and I had a good time that guy was funny I really enjoyed him and 
the other fella had told me about another meeting that he had started that was on Wednesday night. So I went up going to that one. So I'd gone to three AM meetings in three days. And I met several people at that meeting, and I made friends that I have to this day, and that's been, that's been 21 years that I've been going to that meeting, even though I didn't stay sober the first time around, which I'll tell you about some other time, or maybe I'll tell you later in the day. But uh, that's how I got to AA. And after a year, I got a sponsor. Well, after, after about a month in the program, somebody convinced me I needed to get a sponsor, and I started looking for one. And I went to several different meetings and listened to several different fellows talk. And this one fellow, like I said, he talked about liking to get a half pint after work and go up to the liquor store and maybe get a six pack and maybe steal some cigarettes when the guy ain't looking, you know, and go on home and drink it all up and kick back and stuff. And, uh, he had 13 years of sobriety and I wound up, because he said he liked to steal when nobody was looking, I decided that was one of the things I enjoyed doing. Yeah, so I like to do that too. I. Uh, asked him to sponsor me and he took me through the 12 steps and uh, on my one year anniversary he came to give me my one year token and we went to the no name group and it was a big group it was my home group and when they gave him the microphone to introduce himself he got a little bit long winded and he was talking about me, and he was talking about AA, and he was talking about this, and he was talking about that. And I was looking around the room, and I spotted an old guy over in the corner that I hadn't seen in quite some time. And I winked at him, and he winked at me. And we hooked up after the meeting, and I asked him what he was doing there. And I said, I said, I mean, hell, man, you sell dope. What the hell are you doing in an AA meeting? He says, well, this is AA. That's a different thing entirely. This is this is about alcohol. As long as I don't drink, I'm welcome in an AA meeting. But uh, pot's a drug. That's a different thing. And I went, really? A gullible like I am, I went for it. I believed it. So we went over to his house and smoked a joint. And then we, uh, I bought a bag from him, and I took it home, and I started going to meetings cold sober each day and sponsoring guys, speaking at meetings, sharing at meetings. And then when I got out of the meeting, I'd light up a joint and walk home or drive home and get a buzz on. Then I'd go to bed and get up, go to work the next day and start all over again. And I did that for two more years, or a total of three years, I think it was. And at the end of that three years, I really hadn't gained anything out of AA or anything else. I'd gotten very stagnant. I uh, wasn't growing spiritually. Uh, I'd, uh, you know, and and my sponsor came to me at my house and said, here's your three-year token. I said, won't you be there tonight? You're not going to give it to me tonight? And he says, no, no, I'm not. Uh, you're fired. I said, I'm fired. And he says, yeah, you don't ever call me. I didn't. I'd get stoned at night. And I didn't need to call my sponsor. I was stoned. Okay. I sure as hell didn't want to call him when I was stoned. You know, it might make a mistake. But I still didn't make the connection of the two different programs hmm. and what I was doing. And so he fired me, and 
I went and told my two guys that were my main sponsees, they were in a real tough program called the Third Step Program, which was for guys who had been in prison and got a prison release from the judge for two years to go through this program. And it was like boot camp. And the guy that ran it was an ex-con who was tough, hard as nails, named Ron M. And Ron was a bad dude. But he really knew his AA, and he really ran a good program. And for a lot of guys, he saved a lot of lives. Mm. So I was terrified of Ron, so I didn't have anything to do with him myself. But here I was sponsoring two of his fellas, and they went and told Ron what had happened. And Ron told him, no uncertain terms, you got to fire your sponsor, or he's got to have a sponsor. You, you know, he don't have a sponsor, he's got to get a sponsor. He can't sponsor you guys. So I went looking around for a sponsor, and I wound up with the guy that had been the old man who gave me the information about the meetings that I wound up going to after my first night in AA. Hmm. I hadn't seen him in years, but except at those meetings that I went to on Wednesday night. But he, he wasn't my sponsor. He was just a friend. Right. And we sat down and talked, and while we were talking, uh, he was asking me, you know, what what was going on, and I told him about the smoking pot stuff. And uh, he said, what, smoking pot? How do you expect to be sober in AA? And I said, well, that's a different program. This is AA. It's alcohol. That's drugs. And he looked at me, and his eyes got all beady looking, and his head started getting redder and redder and redder up the top. And I went, oops, <laughs> I'm in trouble here. And uh, I said, well, what, what would you suggest I do? And he says, well, if you go home and pray and ask God what you should do, and then shut up and listen for an answer, might not come right away, but it'll come. But you pray hard about it. So I left, and he said, and you let me know your answer, and we'll decide whether I want to sponsor you or not. And I needed to sponsor really quick, or I was yeah, going to lose these right. guys. And for some reason, I had the attitude back in those early years that having sponsees was like having notches on my belt. It yeah. wasn't like having somebody that I could help that could help me stay sober which is the true meaning of having a sponsor and a sponsee relationship. But I didn't see that yet. So I go home and I pray. I prayed for two or three hours. I probably wore God out that night. But I went to sleep and I woke up the next morning and there was nothing. And I went to work and the next day I got up and there was still nothing. So I went to work again. And the third day I got up and went to work and still nothing. And on the fourth morning, at 7 o'clock in the morning, on a Sunday morning, I get a phone call. And there was a little girl that I had met in a program where there was teenagers in a, in a uh, uh, recovery center that we had gone to help out, help them work through the steps at one point. And I would given this girl my phone number at one time or another and said, you know, if you ever have any time you need somebody to call, if you can't get anybody else, you call me and I'll be glad to answer so she calls at 7 o'clock in the morning and wakes me up, and I immediately picked up the phone, and I heard who it was, and I got to talking to her. And she says, I'm, I'm back here at the lighthouse again, and 
they caught me smoking pot and they want to kick me out. And I got the same feeling I'm getting right now. I just got tears in my eyes and I get all choked up when I talk about this because I had my answer. Right. Right then and there, bam, I had it. And I told her what I was doing and what I was going through. And I said, well, I'm going to change my sobriety date right now. And I suggest you do too. And you'll get to stay where you are and I'll get to stay where I want to be. And then I called that guy up and told him what was going on. And he took me on and he sponsored me for five years until he had to leave town for a job. Hmm. And when he left, I decided that now I'd had two sponsors and and I needed another one, but uh, I didn't want a permanent one right away. I wanted a temporary one, which would give me an opportunity to look around for a permanent sponsor because I had to have something. And I get a sponsor and I'm changing my sobriety date. So then I tell those two guys that I'm changing my sobriety date. So they said, well, we can't have you as a sponsor because you got less time in the program than we do. So we got to get rid of you. And uh, I wished them well, and they went their way, and I went mine. And I worked the steps with this fellow, and I came out the other side, and it took me a couple of years to get another sponsee, and then I got two within a few weeks of each other and uh, one of them just left me last year to move to Maine and the other one left me a couple of years ago to get another sponsor and I'm okay with that because they need as long as they got a sponsor that's what's important it doesn't matter who's sponsoring them but I wasn't collecting people anymore I was I was working with people and 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 trying to be the same to them that they were being to me and uh, all right uh after I after I went uh, to the point of changing sponsors, uh, I got one of my fellow sponsors, sponsees that was in my support group uh, from my first sponsor, and he and I decided we would sponsor each other for however long it took for both of us to find a new sponsor, because he wanted to do the same thing I wanted to do. He wanted to make a study and, and, and find a, a new long-term sponsor. He'd been sober for 11 years, and I'd been sponsor, and I'd, uh, like I said, I'd been spon- sober for five years at the time. So we both had enough time to work with each other and, and help each other and still go out and reach, reach out to other people and keep our AA programs going. And I had been going to the Trinity Group, which is a, a big men's group, which... When I first went to it with my first sponsor, he took me to it, introduced me to it, and uh, being the butthead that I was at the time, I made an opinion about the place that it was just a bunch of guys from St. Matthews who uh, were basically the group of people that I had as adversaries because I was a, a Middletown boy with Eastern High School and they were Wagner kids and Trinity kids. And and we're all grown up, of course, but there's still those adversaries going on in our lives and in our minds. And I really didn't want to be around those people, so I never went back. And then for some reason, after I had lost my primary sponsor and uh, got this new sponsor, Maybe I just grew up mentally in AA 
and I decided I would go back to that meeting just because I was, at the time, uh, looking for a new men's group. I'd, I'd never had a men's group meeting before, and I thought I needed that. So I went to it a few times, and I sat back and looked at the perspective uh, of an observer, because at the time that I went to it, I was doing service work, taking a guy to a men's meeting who was court restricted from going to meetings where there were women because he had a stalking charge on him. Hmm. He also had a murder charge on him for uh, uh, being in a car in the West End, which when he stopped at a stoplight, he he was drunk, he was crying, and someone grabbed a hold of his car and tried to get in, and he took off and drugged the guy and ran into a wall, and the guy got killed. Mm. And so he was charged with murder, even though it was an innocent flight to keep from getting robbed or worse. And uh, But the court didn't see it that way, and they charged him with murder. And the primary uh, best lawyer in town was a guy named Don Major, who was a criminal lawyer, and uh, he got the case, and it became a big case here in town. And uh, I was given the opportunity to take this guy to meetings, and another fellow that I worked with uh, took him to another men's meeting a different night of the week. And so I took him to the Trinity meeting, and so I'm like an observer just you know, up in the crow's nest watching what's going on, and instead of participating in the meeting, I'm just the driver, basically. And so I was able to look at the meeting from a totally different perspective than as, a, as an AA participant, even though I was an AA. And uh, I saw a lot of things going on there that I really liked. I saw guys that were helping other people and had had their heads on their shoulders, and, and they weren't those St. Matthew's buttheads that I thought they were at all. Hmm. They were guys that had their program together, and they had good head on their shoulders and, and big hearts and stuff, and I wanted to be a part of that. And so I joined that home group, and I stayed with them for a couple of years. And while I was there... I was looking for this new sponsor, and I saw this guy, and uh, I started listening to him when he shared. And I really wasn't familiar with him and stuff, but uh, after a while I finally found out what his real name was, and it just happened to be Christopher. And uh, I said, well, i got to keep an eye on him. I, this, the, he's, got, he's got possibilities. Well, after, after about a year or so, they decided that they were going to go to a, a retreat uh, it was a men's retreat, and we were going to have it down at Gethsemane. Uh, it was the first time we'd been there. We'd been at Lourdes, uh, Lourdes in Bardstown, which was a, a women's uh, retreat center, but we'd, we'd booked it a couple of years in a row, and uh, they were repairing that, and so they'd shut it down, and so we, we went and got permission to go into Gethsemane. And while we're there, uh, the first meeting we have lasted an hour and a half, and there was 45 men involved, and most of the men got to share a little bit about themselves and stuff at the first meeting. And I heard uh, Chris speak a little bit, and I thought that was fascinating what he said. I liked what he said, that kind of stuff. That sort of, it was starting to solidify my ideas of really keeping an eye on him. And after the meeting was over, 
I go outside because I used to be a smoker, and, and although I didn't smoke anymore, I still went outside after meetings were over just because that's where all the chit-chat is. Even though you got to be around the smokers, you know, to, to get yep. it, it's worth it because the people that hang around inside, they're kind of closed-mouthed people. Mm -hmm. So I go outside, and uh, as I'm walking out the door, Christopher is standing at the door, and he says to me as I'm coming out the door, he says, Hey, Eddie, a uh, bunch of us are going up on the hill to pray. You want to go with us? And, of course, I have a split personality in my brain. There's my alcoholic brain, and then there's my AA brain, and they work hand-in-hand hand with each other, and they clash at some points. And as soon as he said that, my alcoholic brain went over and said, Hell no, we don't ever go out and kneel down with guys, for God's sake. Sure not in public. And we don't pray, for God's sake, with each other. Of course, this is all in my head. It's not out loud. Yeah. And my AA brain takes over for a split second, and out loud I say, yeah, I'll go. And then I realize what I've done, and I, my, AA, my alcoholic brain's taken over again, and I'm, th I'm thinking as I'm walking along with him, heading for this long walk across this green sward, and I see this hill and how steep it is, and we start to climb up it, and I realize with my asthmatic lungs, I am not going to make it all the way up, and I'm going to have to stop. And I remember all the times in my life when everybody else kept going when I had to stop because I couldn't keep up. And the guys I was running with would run off and leave me, and the guys I was walking with would run off and leave me, and, and the crowds I was with, would, no matter what we were involved in, they'd all run off and leave me, and I was always left behind, and i always have to play catch-up. And whenever I'd get anywhere where I caught up, everybody would say, well, we're rested, let's go again, and I wouldn't get to get a rest break. And on and on, and my head is so wrapped up in stuff, I don't know which way's up. And I get halfway up the hill, and I stop. I said, i got to stop. I got to catch my breath. And I'm breathing hard. And I looked, and Brandon stopped, and Cone stopped, and two or three other guys stopped, and then the rest of the guys stopped. And I'm standing on this hill with 12 guys halfway up this hill, and they're all waiting for me. Mm. And I got overcome with emotion again because it had never happened. Yeah. And I said, man, this is great. And when I was ready to go, I said, I'm ready. And they said, okay. And we all started up together. And some of them stayed behind me, so I wasn't behind everybody for the first time. And we all got to the hill at the top at the same time, and we all got up there. And Chris says, I want you to form a circle, link arms. And we link our arms over each other's shoulders, and we form this circle. And it's cold, and the wind's blowing. We're on top of this hill. And it's a cloudy day. And he says, I want you to go around the room, or around the circle, and each one of you in turn tell me how you saw God in that meeting. Well, I had never been hit with a question like that before. I really didn't know what to say. And so I just shut my mouth and kept my eyes on everybody. And fortunately, it started about halfway around the circle from me. And I had a chance to hear some examples. And I realized that they saw people doing things for other people, reaching out to other people, helping other people, whether it was opening a door or consoling someone who was distraught or just just booing their 
confidence or, or making them laugh a little bit, whatever it was, that was somebody doing something for someone else that they couldn't do for themselves. And that's, to me, immediately took on what, you know, is an example of seeing God in other people. And I had absolutely no experience up to that point in that respect, but I got it right there. Hmm. And by the time it got to me, I was able to share my experience in that room and seeing God in other people. And so I got past that first mental test in my brain for being in that group. You know, if I couldn't do that, I couldn't be a part of that group in my mind. And I got past that. And then we, uh, I don't know, he had some kind of little chant he let us in, and I, I stood in a group with a bunch of guys and chanted, for God's sake. I was so embarrassed. And it was all about me, and it had nothing to do with anybody else, but it was all in my head. But I got past it, and I enjoyed it. And then we sang something, for God's sake, and I actually knew the words, and so I sang. And I got past that emotionally, and I felt more a part of the group. And then Christopher said something that I would never forget, and I have witnessed a few times since on that same spot where he said, sometimes when we're up here, God blesses us with a sun ray. And within a matter of minutes, the cloud opened up a little bit, and one or two rays came down and shined on us. Mm. And that just got everybody. Yeah, it grabbed everybody. You know, it, it, that solidified that moment in everybody's mind. And we said a Lord's prayer, and we took off down the hill, and went back for the next for lunch or for the next meeting or whatever it was. And we get in that next meeting. And everybody who was on that hill shared about that experience up there and what an emotional feeling they'd gotten out of it, and myself included. And when we came out of that meeting and started back up that hill, that 12 people had grown to 25 people, and we went up that hill together. Hmm. And we stayed together all night. And that did it for me right then and there. And so when we got back to the home group again the next week, I asked Chris to sponsor me, and he says, why'd you wait a whole year to ask me? He knew I was watching him the whole time, and mm -hmm. I didn't know. I was clueless. But that's the kind of observant, caring person that he is. And that that's, I said, man, this is, I said, what I need is a spiritual leader, and that's what you are to me. Mm -hmm. And that was back when we called our meeting uh, Men's Experience, Strength, and Hope. And... When they changed it to spiritual underground, that fit perfect. You know, that's exactly what it is for me. Yeah. And I love him to death, and I love everybody in that group to death. I'd do anything for any of them if they asked me. And they know that, and I know that about them. And that's the kind of trust we have and the kind of love we have, you know, and uh, that's what does it for me. So when we got to the point where Christopher decided he was going to write a book, he says, uh, y'all won't see as much of me as you used to because I'm going to write a book. And he sat down and he started writing this book. And it took him five years to write that book. A long time. A little bit at a time. But he took his time and he put it out and he published it. And he started this group of TSSR. 
And he said, now I know not everybody's going to go along with me on this, but any of you guys that wants to come over to this group and help out, you can be a great help to me and everybody in this new group if we get it going, because if we take people through the steps, we're the only ones with the experience to do that. And the first generation of people that go through TSSR are going to have an AA sponsor. And the next generation is going to take somebody else through it. And they're going to be more and more people growing. And they'll all be TSSR people taking them through it. And that's what's happening now. Mm-hmm. The, 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 the baloney foldover has rolled over a couple of times, if you will. And people are getting to the point where they're all taking each other through it. And they're growing from it, and it's catching on, and uh, I'm really pleased with it. Now, I have a sponsee in the group, and uh, we've uh, worked quite a bit slower than other people, but that might be because we're old. It might be because we talk too much to each other and enjoy our company too much, but that's okay. It doesn't matter how long it takes to do the steps. The idea is to do the steps, yeah. and we're getting there. And uh, when we get there to the point that I get to send her off and find someone of her own to do the steps with, I'll be right there beside her in her mind and behind her in her mind and, and within reach of the phone or the text whenever she has a question so that she won't feel alone in it. And she'll be able to take someone else through it and gain that experience and that person will gain that experience, and it goes on, what they say, ad infinitum. Right. One after the other. And that's what this program's all about, and that's what AA's been about for 89-some-odd years. Yeah, you mentioned that. Uh, that's one of the things I, I guess you could say, maybe struggled with or pulled at me was the pace in TSSR. You know, uh, when I'm taking somebody through the work and they're an alcoholic or an addict, there's this window of opportunity, and I'm trying, you know, one of the goals is, is to get them free before they have to drink again, you know, because you know if you get past a certain point, then you kind of don't have to drink again, right? Mm-hmm. Because you've gotten yourself free. You've unloaded that garbage can and stuff. So there's like a sense of urgency to get through. And I don't go real fast, but I do have a pace that Christopher has taught me, and I try to stay on that where I see in TSSR that sense of urgency is not necessarily there, nor is it necessarily needed because of the window for the recovery, you know, to not drink again is not there either. You know, they, we all have these behaviors, mm-hmm. but like, you know, as, you know as well as I do that for me to drink again is going to turn a tornado on that is going to be hard to stop. And uh, these, a lot of people that come through TSSR that don't have the chemical dependencies, the tornado is not just sitting over there in the corner getting ready to go out of control. Uh, I had to slow myself down and allow people to work through this at the pace that works for them. And uh, not for the pace that works for me, you know. Uh, it's a it's a it's a different uh, it's a different animal. Same steps, but just a little different. Well, when I first started working with people in AA, uh, I learned early on to get them into that first step as quickly as possible and get them to admit they were an alcoholic. Yeah, and come to the realization that their life is unmanageable. And then start working on that spiritual part, and then go back and start reading the book with them. And we'd read, you know, take turns reading a page at a time, but we'd read that whole book yeah. all the way through. 
And uh, one guy I worked with, we actually went all the way through the book, and then we went over and did the 12 traditions, went all the way through that book too, the 12 and 12. And uh, that's the one that took off and went to Maine, you know. Yep. So he got he's up there now, and not only not only is he uh, well well read in both the AA book and the Twelve and Twelve, he's doing the TSSR thing up there too. Yeah. You know. Yeah. So uh, when you met Christopher in that point in your life, I think it's a uh, you know people have this, and I have a similar kind of thing where I was. Uh, there was four years between my introduction to AA and meeting the spiritual underground and then obviously meeting Christopher uh, was a big turning point in my, I just couldn't get any traction really before meeting Christopher. Uh, I had periods of sobriety and I actually well, did stay sober for a year on the front end and uh, and really wasn't feeling that attraction that you talked about when you were saying about this uh this the the prayer meeting and the thing where you know you were like oh hold on this is what I've been looking for that's what I was hearing you say mm-hmm. and uh, and I wasn't finding that in AA prior to meeting the people in the spiritual underground I had the same kind of feeling I was like hold on a minute there was a bell went off and it was saying hold on you now you're home you found you found them you know found your tribe uh, so I heard that from you too you, you got any, is there anything you want to share specifically about that turning point. Well, when when I first came in AA, I had to find a power greater than myself. And I came to believe in a power greater than myself um, because I went slow. I read We Agnostics, and that gave me the opportunity to change my attitude a little bit and be open-minded enough to say that even though I don't have one, there is one. And if there is one, I have the opportunity to find that one if I'm willing. And that led me to open my mind up and start to come to find a power greater than me. And I was told by my sponsor that I needed to go to work. I wasn't working at the time. I Mm. still had plenty of money. I didn't really have to work, like I said. And I was prone to loafing, which is, you know, I'm kind of a lazy person. Anyways, I used to be. I'm not anymore. But uh, while I was doing that, I went to work for a company that I'd been taking training in electronics uh, up in Lexington and stuff, and I had a two-year associate's degree in electronic communications. And I'd worked for a TV station and stuff for a while. And when I came back to Louisville, I, I'd pretty much gotten away from that because I was still drinking and, and I wanted to go back to bartending and all that, so I pretty much put that on the back shelf because I really didn't... I wanted to know about it, but I really didn't want to do it, you know. It's, yeah. It just... I never caught that knack that a lot of the other guys did for uh, finding problems and solving them instantly, you know, stuff. It's just... It was still too much book work for me. And... Uh, so I didn't click like they did, and so they went on and found good careers in their industries and stuff, and, and I went on back to drinking and doing other things after I got divorced that I wasn't doing you know, as much of before. And uh, so when I got back here, um, wait a minute, I'm trying to think. Uh, I went to work for this laptop repair facility, and 
I interviewed for it, and it turned out the girl I interviewed with was the granddaughter of a guy I used to drink with back in high school. Mm. So we talked about him for two hours, and I got the job. And I realized when I sat down the first day in that laptop repair facility, and this laptop's coming down the conveyor belt towards me, and I'm supposed to pull it off, open it up, and troubleshoot it, I didn't even know how to turn the damn thing on. Yeah. And I fiddled with it for about 10 minutes. So I got it up and running. And, and uh, I mean, I actually found a button, you know, and pushed it, and it worked, and it came on. And, and that was the first laptop I'd ever seen. I bullshitted my way into that job, and, yeah. and I didn't know what I was doing. I knew enough about computers and things from what I'd learned with the, with the big uh, desktop models and stuff that I, could, that I could get in there and try and figure out what was going on. And uh, I replaced a couple of, you know, uh, hard drives and a couple of these things here and there. And then I found a screen that was screwed up, and I had to replace the whole screen. And I, I pulled it out and unscrewed it and took it off and disconnected the plug from the motherboard. And when I pulled the plug out, I looked at it, and it had nine pins on it, and they were about this long. Went all the way down in that motherboard. It was deep. It was a, there was a compact laptops. And uh, the room I was in was a big warehouse, and the lights were way up at the ceiling, and so it wasn't real bright in there. My eyesight's older because I was an older guy. Most of these guys were kids, you know, just fresh out of school mm-hmm. in their late teens, early 20s, you know, but very savvy about computers because they grew up with them, right. whereas I was kind of ignorant, you know. I'd had a desktop or two, and that was about it, and I'd just gotten some Windows 95 training, got my certification, and jumped into this job. And uh, so I went to put that set of pins on the new screen in there, and I had trouble getting it in there. I mean, 9, 10, 12 pins like that, they just didn't want to fit. And I was a little nervous, and so I bent a couple of them, and I straightened them out. And I finally got it in, and I got it working, and I got it back together, and I set it on its merry way, and it passed inspection, and I got through it. And it wasn't too bad, but it was kind of scary. And I thought, boy, I hope I don't want to get another one of those. And so, like two or three laptops later, I got another one, and I'm working on it. And I start to have trouble with those pins again, and I did something that I had never really done except that one time in my life, I asked God for help. I said, God, please help me get these pins in here. I'm freaking out. I'm going to lose this job. And it just went straight on in, just went smooth. And I put it back together, and I get to the end of the laptop, and the last thing i got to do is put one more screw in the back of the motherboard in the back of it to get it going. And that screw skews sideways and starts to jam. And I back it out, and I get a fresh screw, and I start again, and it skews again, and it starts to jam. And I start panicking because I cannot screw up this laptop because it belongs to somebody. It's not it's not a company model. It, it's from somebody that's sending in to get it fixed. Yeah. You know, some engineer or something. It's their favorite, whatever. You know, got stickers all over and all that shit. And uh, I said, God, please help me get this screw in. It went, boop, went right in there. And I just sat there and I thought about it for about two seconds. And I just started crying. Hmm. I realized that every time I asked God for help, whether it was to get sober or to fix that first laptop or to fix this second laptop, every time I asked, I got a result. 
Yeah. And I just broke down. I just sat there, and I'm just tears just rolling down my face. And my manager comes over and he says, Eddie, what the hell's the matter now? Because he's used to me fucking up. He'd already told me I couldn't even ask these other guys for any more help. I'd already burned them out on helping me with shit. And I said, I just looked at him and his tears all down. And I said, I found God. Uh, and he says, wonderful. Now get back to work. Yeah. And I got back to work and I finished up my day. And I called my sponsor. When I got out of there, I called my sponsor and told him what had happened. And he was very happy for me, you know. And I was very happy for me and everything was good. And the next day I went back to work and I went into my desk maybe at 15, 20 minutes and six people came up and surrounded my desk. And I thought, what the, you know, they're all wearing their white coats and shit. I thought, fuck, what's going on? It ain't my birthday. They ain't gonna sing happy birthday to me. And I said, what's going on? And they said, uh, well, your 90 days is up and uh, you, you know, you had to get to where you could repair 15 at a time a day or you couldn't stay with us. We told you that. I said, yeah, I did. Well, I did 16 yesterday. And they said, yeah, well, they bumped it up to 18 over the weekend, so you, you're out the door. Wow. So they escorted me off the premises, and I left. Huh. And I came back. Let's see. Uh They called me back about three weeks later. They said, we need somebody to test laptops. We know you can do that, but we need somebody to fill it. Can you come back to work? And I was glad. I mean, I was pissed off that they yeah. let me go, but I was glad to have another shot at it because I knew I could do it. So I get in there, and I'm testing laptops, and I'd line up 10, 14 laptops at a time, and I'd get them all set up, and I'd go and hit the buttons and run all the tests on them, and I'd ship pack them up and ship them on down the line and I'd get a whole nother bunch and I was rolling through there. I was testing them fast and I was getting them right, not having any problems. And there was a fella in there, it was a young fella and he liked to talk to me and every once in a while he'd come over and be chatting with me and stuff and he had an uncle that had gotten him the job, the nepotism they call that. Yeah, I was looking for that word yesterday and I couldn't come up with it. <laughs> and uh, He and I were chatting, and, and uh, like two or three days before, they had put out an order throughout the entire factory that said, even though the majority of the bosses were black, supervisors were black people, and uh, some of the head management was black, and some of the some of the techs were black, and a lot of people were white, they said, it's come to our attention that the word motherfucker has been used too much on the floor and it's causing problems. It's fighting words, basically. So no one will be allowed to use it while they're on the floor in our employ. <sighs> that's one of my favorite words. <laughs> you know, that's pretty hard to... But I, you know, I talk, I pray about it and I hold my tongue and when I want to say it, I don't say it. I don't say it. I don't say it. And I noticed after a period, a very short period of time, that the black supervisors and stuff start using motherfucker pretty freely. And it's not a two-way street here, you know. It's not working for me. And uh, 
so this guy comes over and he's he and I are talking and I had just set up a row of like 15 laptops and he walks over to the middle of it and touches the key on one of them and sets off the test in the middle of the fucking thing. I said, you stupid motherfucker, why in the hell did you do that? He says, we can't use that word. I said, well, I can fucking use that word if you fuck up my fucking display here. I was pissed. And he went and told his boss, or he told his uncle what I'd said. Well, the next thing I know, I'm surrounded by that same bunch of guys again. I'm off the floor. And uh, so I went home and I called my sponsor and I told him what happened and stuff. And he says, well, you know, shit happens. You lost your job. They let you come back. You screwed up again. You lost it again. It's over. But you owe an amends to those people, especially to that guy. So you need to go back and you need to make amends to him before you can, you know, got to clean up that side of your, your side of the street mm -hmm. before you walk away from it. So I get back in my truck and I drive over there and it's like two or three hours before the shift's over. And I'm sitting in my truck and I'm, I've got a book and I'm reading it and stuff and I'm killing time and it starts to snow. And it starts to snow fucking hard. And by the time the shift is over, everything is covered with three or four inches of snow. The whole parking lot. And of course, I'm in my truck, and I'm warm as toast, I'm comfortable. And I'm reading my book and shit, and the shift comes out, I see them coming, walking down the thing, you know. So I wait till they get close to the truck, and I open the door, and of course, all the snow falls off the door and shit, and, and out I walk out into the, in street clothes, right out in the, and, you know, they're walking down here in a group of flanks, if you will. And I go out, because i got to find this one guy making amends to him. And they see me, and they all stop. And they tense up. They don't know what the fuck's going on. i got no business there. I'm not even supposed to be on a property anymore. And here I am, and they, you know, it's dark, but there's some light. You know, I don't have a gun or nothing like that, but they get all nervous. They're like, I'm going to kill somebody. Yeah, that you come back for revenge or something. You know? And I said, I explained to him what was going on. I said, some of you guys know and some of you guys don't know, but I'm a recovering alcoholic and I'm in a program called Alcoholics Anonymous. And when I do something uh, and I'm asked to leave, if I've, you know, caused harm, I need to correct it before I go on with my life. So I'm just here to make amends to this young man here because I said something to him that was untoward and caused me to lose my job, but I still said it to him, and I need to apologize to him for using that kind of language. And I cleaned it up right there. Yeah. And I said, that's all I need. And I turned around and walked away and got my truck and drove away, and I've never seen, I've seen one of those guys since then. Huh. And uh, I was, uh, he, he came in where I was working, and uh, when I was working over at the Horseshoe, he was over there as a customer gambling. And he saw me, and he came up the bar and got a drink from me. And he says, are you Eddie that used to work at uh, uh, Jable Global? And I said, yeah. He says, what are you doing here? And I said, well, this is what I did for a living before I got sober. And I couldn't do this anymore. But it's been 14 years now, and I can, I can do this. I have no problem with alcohol working here. And I'm making a hell of a lot more money I ever made with you guys. Yeah. You know, and, uh, but uh, we... Parted friends. It was cool. Yeah. 
but it was it was it was nice that I had done what I needed to do. It, that wasn't the specific guy I made amends to. Right. That was one of the guy techs that I worked with. Yeah, but uh, it was neat to see that. Well, really, uh, action, you know? yeah, and it really makes an impact on people, like you're saying. Especially, so many people are braced for uh, the worst out of humanity, you know, and 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 then to turn around and be shocked that this guy's actually coming back here to do an amend. They really don't even know what that language is, right? It doesn't. They don't know what that is. But that that uh, bringing that is carrying this message. It's that attraction rather than promotion thing that's saying, "Hey, look, this dude's working on a plane that I don't understand. Uh, what's he doing? Who comes back and does that? Right? That's one of the beautiful things about amends is that the shock wave you leave behind you after doing something from the heart." Uh, people just aren't used to that. They're just not ready for it. One of the most valuable things I got out of that was the adrenaline rush that I got. Uh-huh. Being an alcoholic and a former drug user, I like rushes. Yeah, me too. And legal rushes are few and far between. So here I got this great adrenaline rush, and uh, I had gotten a similar adrenaline rush uh the first time I ever gave a token to a sponsee. Mm-hmm. And that was back when I was still with the first sponsor, when I was working with one of those guys that was in that tough program. I gave him his one-year token, and I got that same adrenaline rush doing that. Yeah, And I compared that to a golf shot I made in Lexington where I uh, had the best golf game I ever played and I chipped a shot in from 180 yards out, and it went in the hole. Wow. That was a rush. Yeah. I never made a hole in one, and still haven't, but that was a hell of a shot as far as I was concerned. Yes, I got such is. a juice shot out of that. And yeah. that, to me, is the same feeling I get every time I get spiritual growth. Yeah. And when I got together with Christopher, I realized that, this is the guy that's going to give me those opportunities. And it's been true. It, it, it doesn't happen very often, but when it happens, I know it because I get it from inside. The same place that when I first got God in my life and I had worked the steps and I'd made a clean breast of everything, the first time I tried to do the next wrong thing, I got this antsy feeling in my chest. It was my conscience. And that old phrase from Disney, Jiminy Cricket, jumped up and said, let your conscience be your guide. And that's been guiding me ever since. You know, that's funny. If that's I'm exactly doing, the same thing I was I know thinking. it's the next right thing if I don't feel that in my chest. Right, yeah. It's funny that pinged me when you said that. I thought of uh, Jiminy Cricket, too. Uh, that's well, exactly kid, what— We all watched Mickey Mouse Club. We're all inured what, uh, to that. I listen to a guy named Jordan Peterson, and he talks about the stories underneath of that Pinocchio story, and he talks about those same things. He also says in there that Jiminy Cricket is J.C. That's his initials, which is the same as Jesus Christ, Mm -hmm. Uh, that that was on purpose, that his name is in Jiminy Cricket was, he says it's some kind of Southern slang for Jesus Christ, too. Uh, Well, I can see that. And so that's the story, uh, at least in his estimation, the uh, story underneath of that conscious thing is that's how we use this power. This this God element 
in order to feel our compass, making sure that we're going in the right direction. You know, like you said, I, I almost, it's almost always known when I'm doing something wrong. My conscious knows that I'm going, doing something against my constitution. Uh, and then when you do something, you just kind of, sometimes these things you just stumble into that is directly in line with your constitution. And that gives me that spiritual high of that, uh, that you're talking about that uh, adrenaline rush kind of deal where I am feeling like I'm exactly where I'm supposed where I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be doing I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be doing exactly what I'm supposed to be doing uh, and man that's a great feeling if I don't have something like that in my life to give me that uh, you know that ultimately is a big huge thing that keeps me sober today because I have some element in my life where I can get that up feeling without using chemicals i can do it from just a pure heart mm-hmm. type of thing and if i don't have something to replace the vacuum that is left from stopping the dope and the booze uh i think that's that's why aa my initial in, into aa i wasn't getting what we call the juice in my life and when i met spiritual underground i started getting filled with the juice and having an actual replacement for uh for what I for what I was searching for through mm-hmm. chemical use, I was looking for that the whole time. Uh, just didn't know any other way to get it besides using chemicals. Uh, and and now I have these tools where I get to, I get to have that. And most of it comes through service element. Most of it comes through doing things for other people with no with no expe- expectation for anything in return. Right, right. That's what that's all about. Yeah, that's a cool story. Uh, I love those stories, and you know it's a. Well, I got one more if you want it. Have at it. Uh, when I was still with my second sponsor, uh, we had a fellow that came to us to our home group from Ireland, and he was uh, a jockey from Ireland. He'd been in. The, he'd won the English Derby, and he'd won the Irish Sweepstakes. So he was a prominent jockey, but he was such an alcoholic. He did a he he was shit faced both times. Mm. Both times he rode in those races, he was drunk on his butt. And he eventually got kicked out of racing over there because of that, because of his drinking, and because he was in the wrong religious party over there with the problems that they were having in Ireland at the mm-hmm. time. He came to America to get away from all that. His days were numbered over there. His life was being threatened mm-hmm. on a regular basis. And being a jockey wasn't all that big. So he gets into Louisville and gets sober, and he comes to us. And uh, because his brogue is so acorns. thick, when he starts reading stuff, everybody has to listen just because it's so beautiful to listen to it mm. even though when you first hear it you don't understand a damn thing he's saying but if you listen enough you start to understand him and you start to communicate with him and uh, one of the guys that uh, came to us as a visitor to our meeting uh, was from South Carolina and he came up here to work to a training session for Humana and he came to our meeting and he heard this guy talking and he said, uh, I've been in uh, AA for a number of years, and I'm uh, getting ready to put on a, 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 a big conference down in 
South Carolina, or North Carolina it was, I guess. And uh, I'd like you to come down and speak for me if you could. And uh, they made him the keynote speaker, which meant he would be the last person to speak before the conference closed. And that means everybody would be there. Right. So they'd all get to hear him. And so we decided to form a squad of 10 guys, and we went down there to support him. So we get a crowd, and we go down there to this conference, and we're down there for three days. And the day the conference is over, he uh, he was told by our sponsor that because he was going to be speaking at a conference, he was going to be recorded. And he could not use the F word. He said, if you use the F word, they won't, they'll kill the copy and you won't be held in posterity anymore. Once, you know, normally they'll put out a, an edition of all the speakers for the conference, but yours won't be in the included because you said that word and we don't spread that word anywhere. And uh, so he got through it without saying that word. And so he got included in it and I've still got it at home. And uh, if you want to borrow it sometime, I'll be glad to let anybody borrow it that wants to hear it because it's, it's a good talk. I like it. But uh, because of that, there was, there was a fellow that was at that conference named Sebastian. And uh, when we were getting ready to come back to Louisville, he asked to ride back with me because he knew I'd be coming back on a, on a more southern route than the other guys because of where I lived in Louisville versus where they lived. And he asked, could I drop him off in uh, some little podunk town in between here and there? And I said I would. So I brought him back, and, and I told him that uh, I would do the driving, and he would be the navigator. And I like to drive fast, and when we get up in the mountains, uh, I'm going to drive pretty fast. He better hang on because that's the way I drive. And he said he was okay with that. And uh, we're driving through the Smoky Mountains, and he decided he would take a nap, and he nodded off. And so I'm not paying any attention to anything. And he's the navigator, so I'm not worrying about where I'm going. And uh, we're supposed to come out in Tennessee. And we came out in West Virginia. Hmm. We missed a turn somewhere. Right. But I'm just driving along. I'm not paying attention. You know, we're not stoned because yeah. we're sober, but right. at right. the same time. But we, we pull off the Plus road. It's beautiful. I, I said, I woke him up. I said, I just saw a sign for West Virginia. Uh, did we make a wrong turn? He said, I don't know. I've been asleep. And I said, well, you better check the map. You're the navigator. And he says, yeah, here's the turn you missed back here a mile or, you know, quite a few miles back. Too too much to turn, not, you know, couldn't turn around and go back. And uh, so we pulled off the road. I said, we got to check the oil because at the time my engine was getting pretty old. And uh, so we pulled off and I checked the oil and it was low. And so I put a quart of oil in it and stuff. And uh, when I went to shut the hood, I pushed down on the hood and it didn't click like it's supposed to. That second safety lock is supposed to click when you push it down. And it didn't go down. And I uh, said, so, you know, this is something happens once in a while, but not very often. I said, don't worry about it. I'll get it. And I pushed it a few more times and it still wouldn't go. 
And uh, he said, well, here, let me mess with it. I'm kind of a mechanic. And I said, well, okay, you take care of it. So he put the hood back up, and he tinkered with this, and he tinkered with that. And, and then he got it, and he went and shut it, and, and it still wouldn't lock. And I said, now, you, you've been with us for three days, and, and you're new to the program, and you don't have a power greater than yourself, right? And he said, no, I don't believe in God. It don't work for me. And I said, well, I'm going to show you something. I said, I've, I've had a power greater than myself for quite some time now, and when I ask God for help, no matter what it is, I always get help. Now, I'm putting myself on the line here with this kid. I'm going out on a major limb. Yeah. But I believe so much in it that I told him this. I said, watch this. And I went over and I laid my hands on the hood of that truck, and I said, God, please help me lock this hood. And I pushed it one time, and it clicked, and it locked in place. And he liked to piss on himself. His jaw almost hit the ground. He's a short fellow, but it wasn't that far to go. But he, he almost hurt himself. And I was amazed, but I didn't say anything because I wanted to yeah, you let him it. absorb that effect. Yep. And he stayed with us for quite some time after that, but eventually he dropped away. But he wasn't my sponsee. He was somebody mm -hmm. else's sponsee. Yeah. But the fact that I was able to do that and exhibit that and I don't know if, if I spoke with confidence and it worked for me. I don't know if because I asked God to help me in a situation like that and God helped me, I tend to believe God helped me. I don't I tend do. to believe it's my confidence because I'm not that kind of a confident yeah. person. I'm usually shaky in that respect. But I was so grateful. You know, it really, really nailed another nail in the book that keeps me going yep. you know yep, and each time I miracles I do that every once in a while not very often but once in a while I do it I mean a lot of times when I'm just at home working on a project for some reason I can't figure out how to do it or, or the screws not going in straight like before or anything that I'm not familiar with I, I ask God for help every single time and I get it right away it's fantastic it's really helped me in my handiwork Yep. What well, used to be, uh, and I can't remember how it goes, becomes a working part of the mind is in there in the book. And, uh, you know, I've, uh, again, this practicing these principles, and, you know, every job I do, I ask for help before I begin. Say, hey, I got this door to replace. Going to need your assistance. Uh, be nice if it goes easy, but if it don't, uh, Help me out here and, 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 and help me get it done. And I can't tell you how many times in just the past two years of doing handyman work, you were saying about your handy stuff, uh, where I will be in a pinch. You know, I'll be in a bind, you know. I'll have something going that just ain't going right, and, and I really don't know what to do because some of the stuff I'm doing, I'm going on intuition. It's not something I know how to do. My line of work is figuring mm -hmm. out how to do yeah. things, you know. And if somebody would come up and ask me sometimes, if they would, if they had the guts to ask me and say, have you ever done this before? If I was going to be honest with them, I'd have, there's times when I would say no, you know. And here I am charging you money to do something I have never done before. But I have some confidence that I can do it. Mm -hmm. And uh, how many, where I was circle back to is that, you know, I will be in a pinch like that and I pause when doubtful. Maybe I am a little agitated too, but mm -hmm. uh, pause, yeah, frustrated take emotionally. a few breaths, walk away from it, ask for help, ask my higher power for help, and then come back to it, and it got lubricated and things worked. 
you know, mm-hmm. and, and and that tool becomes uh, as as you begin to gain, get some confidence with that with it. And you said the word confidence too. Is I begin to have some confidence on this reliance on this higher power, uh, then the more I will employ that, and and I begin to do it as a regular thing rather than a you know where where you know early on it was in those crisis times right where you're you're in a pinch and you don't have anywhere else to go. So then you decide to ask God to help you. Well, I've learned that I don't have to wait for the crisis. You know, mm-hmm. I can ask for help in the front end and it makes life move along so much easier. It's a huge tool and it's hard to, uh, it's hard to prove. And like you said, I don't really know. I have no idea how this is working. I don't know. But when you have those opportunities like that with a guy and you can like demonstrate it and higher mm-hmm. power says, uh, T- t- tapped on that guy's shoulder and said, "Watch Eddie, watch this," and then yeah. just pray for that and snap. The hood goes closed. You know, it's just so cool. It is so juicy. I call them miracles. I have that list, and some Witness. of them are minor, very minor, like closing the hood. You know, the actual event of closing the hood is not that big a deal. Uh, that is would be minor, but the impact it had on this other human brother—that's not minor. That's major. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Uh, you know what this means? The swirl around, mm-hmm. wrap it up. Mm-hmm. You ready to wrap it up? Yeah, I got I got an appointment at two o'clock. Okay, cool, cool. Well, uh, is there any final thoughts before I do my closing? My closing takes about twenty seconds. Uh, no, I think I'm good. All right. Well, man, I appreciate you coming in here. Uh, the you've heard of collateral damage. Uh, what I have out of this podcast is what I continue to get is collateral benefit. And mm-hmm. one of the collateral benefits is is that whether if I knew you when you came here or not, because some people come to the podcast and I don't know them, I meet them in a driveway for the very first time ever. I give them a dre- I invite them here, I give them an address, and I sh- meet them mm-hmm. out there for the first time. So it's somebody like that I get to know through this podcast. And when it's somebody I already have a relationship with, every single time I walk out of here getting to know them better. And that's, that's what's right. deep in these connections so that we know one another better. And so thank you for coming in here and sharing your story today. And thank you for, uh, for allowing me to get to know you better. Uh, I close with two things all the time. One of them is if you're not having a blast in your recovery, it's your own damn fault. And I just want to thank everybody out there for allowing Eddie and I today, uh, allowing Eddie and I to participate in our recoveries in this manner. Uh, peace out. They wanted 